0: Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jorah in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, were there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High, God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors and the royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon.
1: Thank you, Sita. Please do keep your Bibles open at Daniel chapter 3, which is where we will be today. Waldor von Schirach was a German politician and head of the Hitler Youth from 1931 to 1940. In 1936, he made this declaration. One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans... We act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Führer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. Now notice there the deliberate linking of political and religious allegiance and identity. That was in 1936. We all know the horrors that followed soon after flowing from that ideology. But the Third Reich is an easy target, isn't it? Every nation actually is tempted to do this. During the Second World War, C.S. Lewis, who was a good patriot and had fought in the First World War, was disturbed to hear the vicar of his parish church, Holy Trinity, Headington Quarry, praying that God, in the service he was praying that God might prosper our righteous cause. And Lewis protested, who are we to inform God that England's cause is righteous? But we British did. Not only during the war, but after it, when the cult of Winston Churchill created a kind of national religion out of our victorious leader. Now, today we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of the finest resources in the Bible to help believers live the life of faith in a world that doesn't share their values and their commitments. Daniel dramatises issues in the life of faith that actually reoccur for believers in every single generation. And in chapter three, the book of Daniel is asking a vital question, which is this. Who's got the power? Who's got the power? Now, that is absolutely crucial for us to consider today, because whoever has the real power in our lives will shape the course of our life and our future and our character. They will determine how we live, how we think and what we are going to set our hearts hopes on you know we are all serving something whether we want to or not we all serve things as human beings so let me ask who has the real power in your life today who's got the power now our text tells a fantastic story and above everything else it is a story of power and i've got three headings to share with you i've adapted them from robert files excellent commentary on daniel Here they are. Firstly, the awful power of the world. Secondly, the apparent weakness of God. And thirdly, the awesome power of God. The awful power of the world, the apparent weakness of God, and then the awesome power of God. Firstly, the awful power of the world. In chapter 2, which we thought about last week, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed a dream of power. And it was embodied in a huge dazzling statue made of different kinds of metal it had a head of pure gold it had a chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs were made out of bronze its legs of iron but the feet were a curious mixture of iron and clay and I think this may be where we get the expression feet of clay from and in the dream a rock that was cut out not with human hands had been I don't know projected against this statue and smashed the feet, which were made of that mixture, and the whole statue had toppled. And Nebuchadnezzar was incredibly troubled by this dream and couldn't even remember it fully and wanted to know what it meant. And God gave one of the Hebrew exiles, Daniel, the interpretation. Daniel and his three friends, we've just heard about three of them, were living in exile in Babylon and young men uh, being trained and indoctrinated into the system of that culture. And Daniel was given this interpretation that this dream is about rule and about authority and about dominion. Who's got the power? Now, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was told that he was the head of gold and his regime, his... his uh, uh, um, What's the word? His country, his, his establishment would last. And he was delighted to hear it. And actually, in chapter 2, verse 37 to 38... God revealed that Nebuchadnezzar had been given the rulership of the known world for a season and those words even reflect the language of Genesis chapter 1 of being given dominion over the creatures and over the world. But this dream interpretation, which had been given by God, instead of leading Nebuchadnezzar to humility, actually went in the opposite direction. He decides he's going to go one better. He will build the tallest statue in the known world and his statue will be 100% gold, not just the head, all of it. Probably using gold plating, a, a, technique, a technology that was known and used in Babylon at that time on statues. And the proportions of this statue are designed to impress and intimidate. You'll have read there, as Sita was reading, that it's, it's actually very tall and very slender. Um, it's about 90 feet high. And so it's as tall as 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 any human structure they would have had, but it's it's really slender. And it's set up on a plane so that it can be seen for miles around in every direction. And as the sun shines on it there in the east, the ancient east, uh, the the gold will reflect this dazzling uh, light and will be impressive and intimidating. Now, this statue, we don't know what it was. It could have been of, of a god. It could even have been a representation of nebuchadnezzar himself we don't know but we do know that it represents an ideology it says nebuchadnezzar is in charge he's got the power and he calls all peoples to submit to it you read there in verse 4 the herald loudly proclaims nations and peoples of every language this is what you are commanded to do he's calling people from all around the known world to come under the rule of his regime. This is a kind of a reversal, an attempted reversal of what God had done with the Tower of Babel, where he'd scattered the nations. And now Nebuchadnezzar is trying to bring them together in his own way. And he will do this by assembling the leadership of the peoples. And you notice there were these funny lists that were given a few times in the, in the chapter. The first time is it's in verse 2. And it, you kind of have to, to um, r- rumble through them. You know, there's satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. And the scholars tell us that these, this list is actually a kind of in a status order, so that the first ones, the satraps, are the most senior, and they kind of go down the pecking order to the most junior. A satrap was probably a governor of an entire promise, province, a prefect, not what you're thinking of, which is a school prefect. A prefect is someone who's the next tier down from the satrap. And then you've got the governors and you've got the, the, the ju- judiciary people, the magistrates and the judges and so on. And so they're all being brought, all the great and the good, all the establishment from all these different peoples. And they're all brought together. And there is a clear linking here of a political power grab that we're going to be unified and a religious ideology. And it's there in verse 5. You must fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So here is an attempt at unification under a religious political ideology. He has a state-sponsored orchestra with a wide variety of instruments. You know, it's got the, the horn flute, zither, whatever that is, lyre, harp, pipe, all kinds of music. Some of the older translations even (laughs) use the word bagpipe. You can imagine a few Scots in there. And so he has this, it's like the the school carnival band or something. And when you hear the sound of the music, you must fall down. And the reason you're going to do it is quite brutal because in verse six, the reason you do it is whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Right, who's got the power? Now the 20th century I think will be remembered as a dreadful time in human history known for its totalitarian governments. Totalitarian means a system of government that is centralised, dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. But we see here in Daniel chapter 3 that this kind of government is actually nothing new. Here it is in the ancient world, in the ancient East, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And this story is so well told, isn't it? There's a deliberate build-up of atmosphere. And we can, in our mind's eye, we can see the dazzling statue and the people in their multitudes coming to gather around it. And we can hear and see the crowds of the great and the good from all the nations in their finery with their pomp and circumstance. And we can hear the herald's loud proclamation. And then we hear the music start. And then, like a kid's party game, we all fall down. Because we can smell. We can smell. We can smell the fumes of a blazing, fiery furnace. And the ultimatum has been clear and simple. If you don't bow down, that is where you will go. This is bow or burn. Friends, this is a vivid depiction of the awful power of the world. Seen in its most naked and raw and ugly expression. And when I say the world, I'm using that term in the way that the Bible uses it, which is not the created planet which God loves and and owns, but the system of life that is organised in opposition to the true God. Let me say it again, the world... In this special kind of technical use, is a system of life that's organised in opposition to the true God. And the world wears different guises in different contexts, different times of history. Sometimes in world history, the world has appeared in atheistic clothes, secular clothes. When Mao Zedong founded the People's Republic of China, all the missionaries and Christian workers and Western church leaders were expelled from the country. It was an attempt to remove Christianity from the nation. Chairman Mao's wife vowed that they would destroy Christianity so completely that it would exist only in museums. But sometimes, you know, the world wears religious clothes. There are religions with their holy scriptures and their practices and their rules and laws and ethics that are united against the true God and against Jesus Christ, his son, our saviour. There are people living in Britain at this very moment who know that if they convert to Christianity, they risk their lives. There could be an honour killing, perhaps even carried out by their own parents. I know people that have been threatened with this. Personally, I know them. And, and their, their parents, their family, their uncles, their brothers would think that They're they're serving God by by killing someone who converts to Christianity. You see, at various times, religion and politics have been welded together in a terrifying alloy, and even Christianity itself has been twisted out of shape in such ways. But whether it is secular and atheistic or whether it's religious, the world is always opposed to the true God of the Bible, opposed to Jesus and the world always puts pressure on believers to conform or suffer and in Daniel 3 they suffer by being commanded to do something that God has forbidden which is to worship an idol you may remember uh, the the 10 commandments that that distillation of the the perfect and good law of God the 10 commandments which are given uh, through Moses God gave them to him uh, on Mount Sinai and that these 10 words summarize God's Law And the first two, where you shall have no other gods before me. And secondly, you shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down and worship one. And so this command here of Nebuchadnezzar is a breach of the first two commandments of the first of the ten. Worship an idol. And they can't do it. Now let me ask a couple of questions of us before we move on to our second point. How do you come under pressure from the world? How do you come under awful pressure from the world? For example, how do you come under pressure on the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel? And secondly, what kind of consequences might there be for you if you refuse to accept the gods of your culture? What kind of consequences might there be for you if you trusted and obeyed God alone and refused to accept the gods of the culture? The world can have awful power. And at this point in our story, you know, things actually get worse. Because in the face of this awful power of the world, God actually seems really weak. And here's my second point the apparent weakness of God. Uh, now the book of Daniel had begun back in chapter 1 with a crushing defeat for the people of God. Their, their last king in the nation of D- Judah, Jehoiakim, had been a kind of a weak puppet king and he's been battered by Nebuchadnezzar who's the, 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 the reigning, the new s- aspiring leader of Babylon. And really the man who is is now the world power, the leader of the superpower. And is a crushing defeat. And at the start of the book we see the te- even the temple of God being raided. And the, some of the precious things, the sacred things from the temple being taken away to Babylon. And put in Nebuchadnezzar's temple which is a, an absolutely clear statement. Your God has lost. My, our gods have won. And we've now taken these things and appropriated them for ourselves. And Nebuchadnezzar takes a handful of the leadership of the nation and brings them into his Caught into his service and brings them into the graduate trainee scheme which is three years of complete enculturation at the hands of the Babylonians given new names given a full education called into service and even being told to eat the royal diet it's an absolute appropriation of these men to turn them into good Babylonians to encapsulate and ensure power and so now these four Daniel and his three friends are in exile. And and so this exile itself has already appears to the whole world that the God of the Exodus has lost. He's lost his power. Only a remnant remains of the once great nation that God had called. God had promised to Abraham, their founding father, they would be his blessing, his vehicle of blessing on the whole world. And now what remains of that promise? Is it all over? It looks like it is, because here in our story, things go from bad to worse. Verse eight, some, they're called astrologers here. The word actually is Chaldeans. They come forward and they denounce the Jews. These astrologers are part of the official intelligentsia, and they've lost face back in chapter 2, and now they've been bearing a grudge. They resent the Jewish success. They've been waiting for a moment to throw them under the bus. The perfect opportunity has now arrived, and it's gift-wrapped, because they can gain favour with Nebuchadnezzar by destroying and betraying these three young Jewish men. We don't know where Daniel is at this point. Perhaps he's away on business. But his three friends are in an incredibly awkward spot. Their Bible clearly commanded them not to worship any other gods or bow down to idols in the Ten Commandments. And perhaps they've been hoping to stay quiet and sort of go under the radar and just get on with life quietly. But the religious police have been spying on them to see if they will bow down and the informants have now come back. And so the enemies are rubbing their hands with glee. It's time for a showdown. And first of all, there's slander. You notice in verse 8 in in our Bible translation, it says that they denounced the Jews. This word uh, in in the language of this part of Daniel is actually Aramaic, which was the language of Babylon. And the word, the Aramaic word that's translated here, denounced, literally means to eat the pieces of flesh torn from someone's body. So, So just imagine this, you know. We're not just going to denounce them. We're going to tear pieces of flesh off them and eat them gleefully. It it would be better translated slander. It's a deliberate attempt to speak to somebody else in a way that you destroy the reputation of the person you're talking about. And so they bring this accusation. And there in, in, in verse 12, it's very direct. They say, there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These are the home team. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are their Babylonian names, who pay no attention to you, Your Majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And this is incendiary. Because Nebuchadnezzar is trying to unify everybody under his rule. He's probably insecure. We've seen hints of that in chapter two. And his great unification plan is threatened by some people who he has promoted. These Jews. And we've already seen his temper before, back in chapter 2, and he's starting to be furious. So he calls them in, and he grills them. And in verse 14 he says, is this true? And I just can't imagine the sinking feeling that these three young men would have felt as they're looking at the most powerful man in the world and being asked this question. Is this true and he gives them one chance to recant and to bow the knee the next time the music starts they must bow or they will go into the blazing furnace and verse 15 issues a key theological challenge I think this is quite brilliant look at what it says in verse 15 he says uh, if you don't worship it you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace here's the challenge then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And the hand in the Old Testament is symbolic of power. Talk about someone being seated at the right hand is the place of power. The hand is the instrument of power. And what Nebuchadnezzar is effectively saying is, I've got the power and you shall have no other gods before me. And their reply is absolutely breathtaking. Verses 16 to 18, they're typically respectful and courteous as they always are, but they are also absolutely clear. Here's what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, I love this, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now that's just incredible, isn't it? Look at the, the tensions within that statement. They, they affirm that, that our God, the true and living God, the most high God, holy one of israel he is capable of delivering us even from this furnace in other words our god can do the impossible even more they, they they reach out even further and they say he will deliver us somehow they have a confidence that god somehow is going to deliver them, but they don't really know how because even if he does not rescue us from the furnace we want you to know that we won't, we're not going to disobey him by worshipping your idol and dishonouring him. Even if he does not. So what this means is they're conscious that they can't presume that God is going to rescue us in this particular spot in space and time from this particular uh, torture and punishment. He may not rescue us right now, but we do know he will rescue us somehow. Now, let's just think about those words for a moment. These three young men have justified the most powerful man in the world in front of the combined leadership of their world. They are looking at the most awesome display of state power that they have ever seen in the statue. And their own nation has been crushed and subjugated by this king, Nebuchadnezzar. They are facing the most horrific death, being burned alive in a blazing furnace. And they say... We have nothing to say in our defence. We can only cast ourselves on the God of the Bible. We don't doubt the power of God to rescue us. But we have no right to presume that he will do so right now. And at this moment, let's be honest, God looks really weak and absent. I think we would be tempted to despair. Before we move on to our third point, let me just ask a couple more questions for us to reflect on what's happening here, how it applies to our lives. When is it hard for you to trust God, to trust that God will keep his promises if you obey him? You just think about that. When is it hard for you to trust that God will keep his promises if you obey him? And secondly what is the biggest challenge to your faith right now What is the biggest challenge to your faith right now is it deliverance from ill health or the oppression of anxiety and 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 mental ill health and depression Are you tempted to think if God can't rescue me from this then maybe he doesn't exist Is it Deep disappointment, the disappointment that comes in life, from, in, in love, in marriage, in, in our grades, in our opportunities, in ourselves. Is it heartbreaking issues to do with one of your children, something you just can't control? It, it, it just tears you up. You, you, you really can't. You haven't got the power to help that child or to rescue that child. And you just think, Lord, why, why aren't you hearing me? Is it about injustice? You're being treated unfairly. You're being slandered. You've been betrayed. And God seems absent. Is it about the challenge of waiting to marry someone who will share your faith commitments, but there's no one around? And it looks like there never will be. Is it about the pressure to conform to a group of friends who you really like and you really want their approval, but you can't have their approval and obey God and you risk losing them and being isolated? Is it the pressure to go along with certain practices in your workplace or in your family that involve disobeying God? You know, there are plenty of times, let's be honest, when God looks weak and absent. So we really need to move on to the third act of this story, which is a revelation of the awesome power of God. The awesome power of God. Now, by any normal reckoning, the story would have ended here, wouldn't it? Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is so furious. His face changes. He is absolutely raging. He orders that the furnace could be heated up seven times hotter. Now, as hot as it can go, as hot as his rage. And scholars think that this furnace may have been a kiln that was used for firing bricks. It was a technology that they used in Babylon at that time. And it may have been like a kind of tunnel with a, a, a solid wall at one end uh, that was uh, heated intensely. And at the top was an aperture or an opening that could things could be put inside. And obviously, people could be put inside at this, in this case. And the, 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 the narrative sort of slows down and the details are excruciating. You know, we get this, all this mention about the clothes and they're wearing robes trousers, turbans and other clothes and you're just thinking ah this is really not going to offer you any protection in that furnace and then he orders that the strongest soldiers bind them up and hurl them in so there is absolutely no chance of some kind of last minute dramatic escape in fact Nebuchadnezzar's fury means he overreaches and so some of his best soldiers actually themselves get burned and killed as they're throwing the three Jewish men in is ghastly And into the fiery furnace go Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and that is the end of them or is it see on this occasion the true God chooses to break into our world and subvert the normal order of things it's his world and he can do that when he pleases there is an astonishing turn of events Nebuchadnezzar feeling somewhat confirmed in his power is staring into the furnace and he cannot believe his eyes because he sees what appears to be men walking around in the midst of the flames and he counts them one two three four he can't believe his eyes so he counts them again it can't be he counts again one two three four and he jumps to his feet in absolute alarm and he says Hang on a minute, how many were thrown in there? I know it was three, can you just confirm here? There were three, weren't there? And they they say, yes, yes, king, was, we threw three people in there. And, and now there are very, very clearly four. And the fourth one is rather special, isn't he? Verse 25 says, he is like a son of the gods. It's a way of saying he is godlike. And in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as God's angel an angel is a representative from God a messenger from God and all of a sudden all of the power of Nebuchadnezzar is simply marginalized you might say it's gone up in smoke because he tried to do his very worst and it was simply overcome by the most high God the true and living God who dwells in heaven and does what he pleases so he goes to the mouth of the furnace And he shouts to them, and out they come. And it is clearly a miracle, because not only have they survived, but they come out absolutely unsinged. There's not even the smell of fire on them. That is a little detail just to underline the miraculous nature of it and the absolutely complete protection that God has given them. They don't even smell like they've been at the barbecue. And Nebuchadnezzar bursts into spontaneous praise, he acknowledges that there is a power that puts all his power into proper perspective. There is a true God who is above all the pretend made-up DIY gods of human beings. There is a king whose rule is above all rule and authority and power in this world. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the most high God. And Nebuchadnezzar declares that Judaism could now be a legal recognized religion uh, in his country. And he does it in typical Nebuchadnezzar style. Verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. You know, Nebuchadnezzar loves talking about cutting people into pieces and turning their houses into rubble. But what he's basically saying is we're going to give them religious protection. That's wonderful. You know, it's a Hollywood ending, isn't it? But I want to ask, who was the fourth man? Who was the fourth man? You know, his identity is not revealed here or anywhere else. But the Old Testament has a number of places, tantalising, enigmatic places, where... a being called the angel of the Lord appears, comes into human history and does remarkable things to save people or communicate with them. One of the most dramatic is with Abraham himself. Uh, three men appear, but it turns out that one of them is the angel of the Lord. And then it says, the Lord said to him. The angel of the Lord is God breaking into our world in a... A human form long before Jesus Christ ever walked the shores of the Sea of Palestine God coming into our world just stepping in and revealing his power to save the power that he has at all times but revealing it in special ways at certain times now look this is not a guarantee of miraculous rescue for all God's people whenever they are in trouble Wouldn't we love it if that was the case? Hebrews 11 talks about the the heroes of faith and it goes through from the earliest days of the Bible and goes through some wonderful characters of the Old Testament who all trusted and believed in God and it actually mentions those who overcame the flames, which is a reference to this story. But just a few verses later it talks about some of the heroes of faith who were put to death by the sword or sawn in two, who were persecuted and maligned and hid in caves in the ground you see God can deliver us dramatically but often he doesn't but whether he does or not he calls us to obedient faith this is one of those special moments where the power of God breaks into the world and so I want to close by asking what is the lesson here for us remember the question that the chapter is raising who's got the power and now the answer is The God of heaven, he alone has really got the power. He reigns in heaven above, in wisdom, power and love. And he can and will rescue his people from death. Now for us, friends, we have seen something much more glorious, much more beautiful, much more dramatic than even this story. Because we've seen Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, The kingdom of God, the power of God invades the world and we get a foretaste of the world to come breaking into the world of time and space right now. So when Jesus came and and walked the streets and healed people and raised people from the dead and calmed storms and cleansed people of leprosy and proclaimed his authority over dark powers, Jesus was showing what the world to come will look like. It was a preview, a foretaste of coming attractions, a kind of show home of what the future city of God, the kingdom of God, would look like. Jesus was showing in his power what God's power will look like when it is filling the entire universe and all sickness and sorrow and brokenness and suffering and death are dealt with because Jesus also had power over death. So for us, we've seen... God's power to save and rescue in a far more dramatic way even than these three guys because we've seen that taste of the world to come in Jesus. And just as that figure, that man, came and walked in the furnace with those three, Jesus came and walked in the streets in our humanity. And Jesus comes and is with us in the furnace of our lives At some point, and it might be now for some of you, you will feel like you are going through a blazing furnace. And everything in you will want to do anything to escape it. You'll feel like you're being consumed. You'll feel like you're being burned up by the the criticism and the unjustness and the things that are said about you. The the suffering that's inflicted on your family or on your heart or on your soul will be such that you you feel like despairing of life itself and at that moment nothing will help you except knowing the presence of Jesus Christ walking in the furnace by your side. Nothing will help you but you will have help because you will have Jesus. Remember his words on commissioning his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all nations and baptise them and Make disciples. Remember remember what he said after that in Matthew 28? And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus came, took our humanity and walks with us in the furnace. And he was unjustly condemned like these young men. And he faced the fiery furnace of God's wrath on the cross. Didn't deserve it. He unflinchingly took it. And he was burned up in the fires of hell for us and for our salvation. And yet he then conquered death and he came out. So one writer says, in the leaping flames of this furnace, we now see the shape of a cross. And if we look a little further, a garden with an empty tomb. Because Jesus triumphs over the furnace. So let me close with this question. What will help you remember that the Lord is in the one, is the one in total control of your life? What will help you remember that the Lord is the one who is in total control in your life and so be encouraged to obey him? Let's trust him afresh today and let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this story It's drama, it's colour, it's magnificent turnaround for the demonstration of your power. Lord, we crave that power in our lives. And yes, we always want some kind of dramatic deliverance. We we don't want to suffer. But we realise that actually through us walking with you in the furnace, we will bring you more glory sometimes than if we were suddenly rescued. So help us both now... And this week and in our small groups as we talk about this truth and try and apply it to one another to know how to obey you in our day and generation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.